Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Mythgard Academy's first session on our discussion of the nature of Middle-earth. I don't have my nature of Middle-earth slide up because today is also another important thing, and that is Bilbo and Frodo's birthday, which means on Bilbo and Frodo's birthday every year for the last, what, eight, nine years now, uh, Signum University has begun our fall fundraising campaign. This is a huge moment uh, in the annual cycle for Signum University. Um, and it's on the one hand, it's kind of the time when I uh, make sure to remember to ask everybody uh, to support Signum financially. Um, but of course, more importantly, and the part that I like best is the uh, the part. It's the time when uh, we celebrate uh, the folks who have made Signum University possible. So I'm going to share some stuff from this past. Year. I won't talk for too long, um, but we got some really exciting things coming up, and then we'll get to our Nature of Middle Earth discussion because it's kind of a twofer uh, here tonight. Yes, happy. Hobbit day to everybody. Um, but um, uh, yeah, anyway, so um, okay, very good. Um, <laughs> sorry, I've got I'm, I've got a new setup going on tonight, and it's a little distracting, and I'm trying to get everything straight. Um, but uh, but there we go. I think I think everything I got everything working here. Um, anyway, so. Uh, a little reflection first on last year's campaign, which was amazing because we set an all-time record last year. Last year for Signum University's annual fund, we raised $81,170.27, a record, the most uh, we have ever received in donations in a year ever before, and it was just amazing. Uh, so I just I cannot thank enough all of the people uh, who made this possible. Yeah, Tarlonio in the middle of a pandemic too. I know, right? I mean, it's just been amazing. Um, uh, the generosity uh, has just it's been blowing me away for years, and uh, recently. Uh, recently, much more so. So, thank you so much to everybody uh, who uh, who donated uh, and gave. We have a, a lot of people give uh, regular monthly donations, which is so valuable uh, to us for being able to kind of predict income and uh, cash flow over the course of the year. Um, but of course, everybody who gives a one-time gift also. That is also very, uh, very much appreciated as well. Uh, so thanks to everybody uh, who uh, who gave. Um, and let me tell you the goal of this year's campaign. This year, we achieved $88,000 last year, which you remember what the target was last year that I announced? <laughs> Some of you with retentive memories may recall um, that I said... Um, $65,000 was our goal for the year. And we raised $88,000. It was amazing. So this year, I'm just going to, um, I'm just, I'm just going to go for it. I, the goal for this year is $100,000. We've never gotten to six figures in a year before. Um, but uh, we're already well on the way there. And I think it's, uh, I think it's very possible. So the, the, the goal this year is $100,000. Now, let me show you, um, let me show you what this looks like, right? Let, let me show you what happens. Because like, some people always want to know, very understandably, like, where do my donations go? When I'm giving to Signum, what am I, what's my money going to? And the primary answer of what your money goes to is people. Your money goes to people. Uh, more than 90% of Signum's total budget is people, uh, is, is, is pay, is salaries. Um, and uh, in particular... Uh, 
let me give a little bit of a backstory. Um, so many of you will remember, some of you, I think, have even been around since the days when I was running Signum University out of uh, my walk-in closet uh, when I lived in Delaware, um, when there was like me and one other volunteer staff person who was running 100% of Signum University. Um, those were the fun early days of Signum University. Um, and what has happened from the beginning, we have uh, committed to paying our faculty from the very beginning. Faculty who have been teaching our courses have been paid from the beginning. But a lot of our staff work has been done by volunteers um, as we've gone along. And that's been true over all the years. Not 100%, um, but there are a number of people. And there are some people who have been with us the whole time, who have been volunteering for years uh, for Signum. Um, and some people who do some work for pay and volunteer some work. Um, you know, we just wanting to, um, you know, a lot of people have given so much not only of their finances, but of their time to make Signum possible. And we are working really hard on transitioning um, the uh, into paying people what they deserve for the work that they do. So check this out. Um, since we raised so much money last year, look what we were able to do. Uh, this is a graph of our non-faculty salary uh, uh, payroll over the last uh, three years. And then the final column is the projections for this year. Look at the jump from last year, right? We paid... We, we, had, we, we paid over $90,000 in salary more last year than we did the year before. So like every penny uh, of uh, that $88,000 uh, that we raised went into paying people. And I got to tell you, hiring people is like my favorite thing. Like the best thing about running Signum University is being able to hire people, being able to give people jobs. It's like this incredible win-win situation where we have resources, we can like do more things for Signum and we can accomplish more at Signum and I get to like give awesome people paying jobs. Oh my goodness. It's just uh, like, again, the best thing uh, in the world. Um, our projections for this year is that our salary uh, payroll is going to increase again, at least another $60,000. We'll see where we end up, what we end up being able to do. Um, but being, you know, enabling us to to compensate people for the wonderful work they do to make Signum and all of its programs and all of its things happen. It takes a lot of work behind the scenes uh, to run a university, turns out. Um, and um, that is what we that is what we use our donations for, and I find that so um, uh, I find that so exciting. Um, yeah, exactly, Simon. We more than tripled our our, our salaries in a single year, right? I, it was an awesome. That was just like this is such an awesome year. Anyway, so that's uh, that. Just wanted to share uh, what's going on now. Donor appreciation. Um, uh, I'm not going to go through all of this in detail, but of course, as many of you know, if you've seen our, our fundraising campaign uh, stuff in the past, you've seen, you know that we have uh, a robust donor appreciation program. We love to give gifts uh, in exchange, uh, you know, to just to show our appreciation for the people who make donations uh, and who support us. Uh, so let me, let me show you. If you go to signumuniversity.org slash fund, which is this page here, right? And you, uh, it's our annual fund page. And if you jump down to the bottom of this page, right, this down here is our donor appreciation program. And it shows you for different annual donations you make uh, the gifts that we give in exchange. For instance, membership on the Council of the Wise to nominate uh, Mythgard Academy seminars. Um, 
uh, everybody who donates $200 or more uh, gets membership in the Signum Fellowship. And every month uh, I have a, a private meeting with the Signum Fellowship um, and uh, to give folks updates about what's going on and share what's happening and answer people's questions and stuff. It's been really cool over the last couple of years doing the fellowship. Um, we have, of course, all of our all of our moots, all of our conferences, our regional conferences are going to be hybrid this year, and so we have um, uh, some special VIP access to our uh, to our both to MythMoot and to our regional conferences in different configurations. You can read the details there for folks who give five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars or twenty five hundred dollars. Um, so lots of really exciting things. I will I will I will leave you to look over this more yourself, but. Um, it's uh, I, as I say, we just love to um, show appreciation uh, for our uh, for our donors, and I'm so grateful uh, for everybody who has uh, given. Now, the other thing I want to do, and I won't take too long again because I'm uh, I have been just giddy with excitement to start talking about the nature of Middle Earth. So much elf math to get into. Oh, it's just so heavenly. Um, but. Uh, I also like to start the fall fundraising campaign by sharing with everybody um, a little bit about our theme. So you saw uh, at the beginning um, our theme uh, for the, the year, The Final Frontier, Rediscovering Learning for All. Um, and so I just wanted to share something about our focus. Um, rediscovering learning for all. L uh, learning what you love has always been a huge part of, of what we've done at Signum. <clears throat> and we really want to encourage the love of learning, not just, you know, thinking about learning about education on a purely pragmatic basis, right? Like to, you know, just to gain credentials in order to get a job or whatever. Um, but thinking about embracing the love of learning. I mean, it's like the best kind of fun uh, that you can have. Um, Signum has been for a long time dedicated to providing as many opportunities for learning as we can. Um, and this year in our fundraising campaign, the, one of the things I really want to focus on that I really want to kind of emphasize and celebrate is the breadth of our programs. Because we, uh, between the programs we currently have and the, the ones which are coming very soon down the pike, um, we've covered like almost all areas of life. <laughs> that people, uh, that different people are in, right? You know, we've got, for instance, our graduate studies, right? That's kind of where we began. This, this is the cornerstone of Signum University, the Signum Graduate School, specifically our MA program in language and literature uh, and our graduate diploma program in language and literature. That's, by the way... Um, just a little name change. Uh, we've had our certificate programs uh, uh, in uh, you know our different concentrations. The graduate diploma program is we we just we've changed the name there a little bit to uh, clear up a little confusion in other places. Um, but uh, anyway, so uh, you know this has been the core of what we've done. Our you know our rigorous intensive graduate study, um, which has focused on imaginative literature, Tolkien studies, Germanic philology, and classical medieval and Renaissance literature. And these are fantastic programs, and we have uh, uh, more than 100 students who are currently enrolled uh, in our graduate programs. It's really, really exciting. But of course, I know that, you know, Graduate programs uh, in language and literature are not necessarily for everybody. That's, that doesn't meet everybody where they are, right? So we have other programs as well. Of course, we've got our Mythgard Institute programs, um, which we've been running for a long time here as well. Um, these free public programs, of which what I am doing this evening is one. Um, 
that are, you know, we make available uh, to lots of folks. And even those, we're going to be expanding some new MythGuard programming uh, later this year, too, which is really, really cool. Um, so we've got you know, our, our open public programs there focused especially on imaginative lit. Um, we have our professional development program, the Signum Path program. Uh, to enable people to gain uh, really crucial training in communications and people skills, uh, which has been uh, a really great opportunity for people. We have uh, K through 12 covered, right, with our Signum Academy Clubs program, which is an extracurricular program for kids. Okay, it's technically not K through 12. It's 3 through 12, grade 3 through 12. Um, uh, we're, 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 we, we may. Uh, get around to expanding to K through two uh, someday also, but um, uh, uh, and of course we we have our uh, our undergraduate program coming soon. I was talking in last year's campaign about the development of our uh, undergraduate program in the applied humanities, uh, which we're really excited about. That's been a little bit delayed. It's been delayed in the accreditation process, uh, but um, we're um, uh, we're still. Uh, excited and planning about that, uh, uh, planning that. So again, like no matter what the you know the age level of interest, there's been something for uh, there's been something for almost everyone. But there's been another dream um, that I have had for a while uh, to really kind of complete the set, um, and that is continuing education, like more opportunities to learn random stuff for fun. Graduate programs are awesome, as I said, but like that's not where everybody is. Um, the public programs are cool, but like I'm only one person, and there are a lot of other interests that people would like to pursue. Um, uh, you know, I've wanted to create a program that will enable people to benefit from a wide array of new, high quality but low pressure avenues for learning, and so. Uh, I am very pleased to announce that later this year we will be launching the Space Program, Signum Portals for Adult Continuing Education. Uh, this is going to be really, really cool. Now, I'm not going to... I'm not going to. We're going to. We're going to talk about the nature of Middle Earth here in just a minute. Uh, so I, I'm not going to spend you know more time tonight going into all the details of the space program. Um, but um, what is going to happen in the space program? You're going to be able to take uh, individual modules, individual space modules, which are going to be about a month long, um, which will enable you to do things like learn new languages. Like, have you have you ever wanted to learn to speak a new language? What about to read a language like Old Norse or Anglo-Saxon? Um, would you uh, uh, would you like to study other areas of literature or film or Lots of other things, almost anything you could want to do. Um, we're uh, we're we're looking into, you know, in our very first round of uh, of space modules are going to include things like uh, modules on Japanese anime and uh, modules on uh, 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 mythology and folklore and fairy tales and all kinds of things. Um, so it's and there's going to be uh, like really flexible uh, subscription options uh, to uh, to the space program. It's going to be so much fun. So more details coming on the 16th of October. October 16th is going to be the date of our annual webathon. It's uh, it's always the culminating event of our uh, our fundraising campaign. Um, so we're, we're having our webathon on Saturday, the 16th of October. Um, and in that webinar, I will be doing. 
uh, I'll be giving my State of the University address. And in my State of the University address, I promise to give you all the details about uh, the space program and uh, how it's going to work and how you can sign up and all that kind of thing. And some of the, like, what are the, the things we're going to be offering first and all that kind of thing. So um, that is uh, that is what is coming and it's going to be really, really fun. Now, last thing is um, we also, another thing we do in our fundraising campaigns every year, as you guys will remember, uh, is uh, prize drawings. Uh, But we're going to do the prize drawing a little bit different uh, this year. Here's how we're going to do it. So um, every week, I'm going to be giving away a major prize. Okay, we're going to do a drawing, and we're going to do it in this class. Every Wednesday evening in this class, uh, I'm going to do the drawing. And, and here's, here's how it's going to work. Well, okay, first of all, let me tell you what the winner gets. The winner of the drawing gets a golden ticket, right? You get a golden ticket, which you can redeem for one of four options. Either one of our new space modules, um, one of our Signum Path courses, one month of our Signum Academy Clubs subscription, or one anytime audit registration for one of our graduate courses. Um, so you can audit one of our graduate courses. You can get a month of clubs. You can get uh, a path course, a one month path path course, or a uh, uh, you can get or one of our new space modules. And you can choose which of those four you want. You could give it to someone else if you want. So like maybe you want to uh, get a month of clubs for your niece or something like that. You can totally you can totally do that. So anyway, um, that's what we're going to be giving away. And we're going to be doing that every week um, uh, during the whole campaign. So um, and, and to qualify, again, the campaign's all about. Uh, showing gratitude to our donors. Uh, so everybody who makes a donation to Signum University between now and next week will be entered in the drawing. Now, if you are already registered, if you're already doing a monthly donation, then don't worry, you'll be registered. Like whichever week your donation, your monthly donation falls in, that will count uh, and you will be entered in that week. Um, so I promise everybody who is uh, uh, who is signed up for a monthly donation already um, will um, will be entered in the draw in at least one of these drawings. Uh, now, of course, if you want to like increase your odds of getting chosen, you could make a separate donation during a, d- during a different week and, uh, we will enter you into that drawing as well, of course. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, so that's, um, that is what's, that is what is going on. Um, <laughs> you know, you don't have to sing a song if you win the golden ticket, Stephen. it's okay. Um, but, um, yeah. So, uh, so again, next Wednesday. Uh, so from like uh, uh, every donation that we receive, starting at 10 p.m. tonight uh, before class and uh, uh, ending right at the beginning of class next time. Um, again, I'll do. We'll I'll, and I'll do. We'll do the. I'll do the drawing. I'll I'll roll my dice uh, right here live in in the beginning of class next time. So, um, uh, so there we go. All right. Um, and I think that. And okay. So. How do you donate? Where do you donate? SignumUniversity.org slash donate, of course, uh, is where you do that. So there we go. All right. Um, um, excellent. <laughs> so thank you, everybody, for uh, all of your support to Signum over the years. Uh, and uh, let's uh, let's talk about the nature of Middle Earth now. So here we go. I'm go- Look, I've got all my... Uh, all my things. Here we go. All right. There we are. My nature of Middle Earth slides. Okay. Woohoo. Now, 
Let's make sure I can get my uh, my chat boxes open and everything. Okay. Very good. Excellent. No, George, I'm afraid the golden ticket does not come with a chocolate bar, in fact. Um, and I will also add, to those of you who are um, chatting either on Twitch or on YouTube, um, I can see your comments as well, but it's a little harder to follow because there's like more stuff to kind of sift through. Um, so I, I will try. If you make a uh, comment or an observation, I'll try to catch that there. Um, but um, I will... Uh, I, no no, no promises. The Zoom link that I sent out, that's where I'm watching the Q&A box there. Um, that's primarily where I'm going to be interacting with folks. Um, so, okay. Yes. Uh, very good. Very good. Um, uh, uh, Tolani was asking, who did the cover art for this book? That's Ted Naismith. Um, that's a Ted Naismith. There. It's actually like a, a revised version of a Ted Naismith painting. I've seen a different version of that one. Um, but uh, yeah, so tonight... Of Time in Arda, um, which is a title that uh, comes up in the book, um, which um, we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. But again, as I, I, as I've been just giddy to talk about this book, um, I think perhaps some Tolkien fans might have opened the book and, you know, paged through a few pages and started to see all of the tables of numbers, right? All the columns of figures in here and been like, uh, whoa. I know some of you were really excited, Stephen. I remember you saying, you know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's, it was like a chocolate and peanut butter thing, right? Somebody got, you know, their math in my Tolkien. Um, but, um, anyway, it's, um, uh, it's very, uh, it's, 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 anyway, I, I think it's immensely exciting. Um, and I'm going to try to explain some of the things that I think are so exciting about it. I felt like, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that before I was three pages into this book, I felt like my, uh, understanding of what was going on in the last 20 years of Tolkien's life had changed, uh, very significantly, um, uh, beyond what, uh, uh, you know, above where it was before. Hang on a second. I'm trying to re-expand things not fully expanded okay um and so i'm going to try to explain that a little bit because of course one of the one of the basic questions one of the the kind of i don't want to quite call it a mystery that's not quite fair but i guess i will one of the mysteries uh has always been why didn't tolkien finish the silmarillion why didn't he publish it himself right i mean when you look back over tolkien's life Tolkien tried to get the Silmarillion published on several occasions, right? He was sending out bits of the Silmarillion to publishers and floating that to see if anybody would be interested in, 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 in publishing that early, like in the 20s, he was doing this, right? And everyone was like, mm, no, thank you. Thanks, but no thanks, right? Oh, what a lovely epic poem about Baron and Luthien. That really, it's, it's nice, but no thank you, right? Um, that was Tolkien's experience. So you'll remember, and we, we talked about this when we were doing, especially when we were doing the Lost Road um, Mythgard Academy discussion, um, was um, uh, that when he published The Hobbit, well, no. When The Hobbit got published and succeeded, right? When The Hobbit was selling like hotcakes, 
that was the moment when Tolkien knew he had the publisher eating out of his hand, right? And so we were looking, a lot of the text of volume, what's volume five? Volume five of the history of Middle-earth, sorry, my bookshelf is right over here, here's why I keep looking over there. Um, uh, volume five of the history of Middle-earth called The Lost Road. Um, a lot of that material is stuff that he was writing and putting together during that time in 1937 when he was like, it's happening. It's happening, right? The Silmarillion is going to finally be published. Now they'll publish. You know, they love The Hobbit. They'll put. And so he gets all this stuff together and he's writing all this stuff and he's like, okay, here you go. Here, you want another book? Here's another book. And the publisher's like, um, that's not exactly what we were thinking of, right? What we'd really like is another Hobbit book, right? Could you write another fun book about Hobbits? Not whatever that is, right? Um, and so Tolkien set aside the Silmarillion materials again and started the Hobbit sequel, which, of course, turned into the Lord of the Rings. So that panned out and was fine. Um, but, of course, there was another point in the 50s, when he had, in the early 50s, when he had written the Lord of the Rings um, and was trying to get it published. And he almost... He did, and didn't almost, he did jeopardize the publication of The Lord of the Rings, because, of course, it was 17 years, right? So the his publisher, who had been panting for, his, for another Hobbit book, right, uh, when it finally came around and was not only a delay of 17 years, but was... Um, very, very, was not the Hobbit book that he was expecting in the first place anyway. But anyway, like, he liked it. Like, the publisher liked The Lord of the Rings. But Tolkien still was, you know, kind of remembering his excitement, I think, of, you know, like 15 years before, and saying, okay, um, you can, uh, if you like The Lord of the Rings, then let's publish that. But I want you to publish The Silmarillion with it, right? That's, that's what I want to happen. And, um, and they said no. They said no, and he went. And he, he was flirting with this other publisher, and then they said no. Um, so, um, anyway, that's um, uh, then he, you know, the Lord of the Rings gets published. After the publication of the Lord of the Ring, <clears throat> right? I mean, if Tolkien got big after the Hobbit, you know, a few years after the Lord of the Rings was published, it was huge. There is no question that at that point, he would have been able to publish The Silmarillion, right? His publishers, by the, t you know, by the time The Lord of the Rings just boomed in the way that it did, um, there's no doubt in my mind that the publisher would have published anything that Tolkien gave him. I mean, goodness, look at what they did publish. Look at the, the adventures of Tom Bombadil, for crying out loud, Right? To please my aunt, I'm going to put together some revised editions of random poems that I've written. And the publisher was like, sir, yes, sir, we will publish that, sir. Right? Like, he could have published the Silmarillion at any time, right? So again, the mystery. Why didn't he? Why didn't he? He had from, you know, the late 50s until his death in 1973. Um... You know, he had more than 15 more years of his life to get the Silmarillion in order. And he had a publisher who was just waiting for the manuscript and they would have published it. And it was his life dream, his life goal to publish the Silmarillion. So why didn't it happen? Why didn't it happen? Now, um, in Morgoth's Ring, 
when we discussed Morgoth's Ring, which uh, was last year, we finished that up in October uh, of 2020, uh, just over a year ago. It's what we were discussing a year ago this time. And um, in Morgoth's Ring, we saw a glimpse of part of uh, the answer to that question, right? Um, Which is, his ideas began to change a lot. Um, When he went back to the Silmarillion stuff, he seemed to find that he couldn't do it anymore. There was, um, and we talked about this a lot. Um, And by the way, you will already have noticed in the first five chapters that Karl Hostetter, uh, in his notes, refers to Morgoth's ring like 50 times. Okay, maybe not 50, but many times, right? Um, and uh, so I, I'm really glad that we did our discussion of Morgoth's ring before we uh, are, are discussing this because that's going to be very, very helpful. So if you don't know Morgoth's ring, you might want to go back and uh, uh, you can watch some of the, the episodes. The episodes are on YouTube um, uh, in the uh, Mythgard Academy uh, section of the Signum University page. Um, but anyway, um, in that discussion, we were seeing that when he had come to that momentous moment, when he married the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion together, right? That moment when he decided that all of that early elf mythology that he had written in his earlier days, right? And which he continued to be writing about and thinking about and developing the languages of, um, when he decided that the story he was telling, this new story that he was telling, The Lord of the Rings, was going to really be in that world. Um, That did not happen right away. And uh, those of you who have been around in these discussions for a while will remember that wonderful session that we had um, uh, when we were discussing The Return of the Shadow, where we see what I am 100% convinced is the exact moment, like the sentence that Tolkien wrote, in which those two worlds came together for him. And that sentence, of course, it was, I will tell you the tale of Tenuviel, right? When Strider says that to the hobbits. Um, but um, uh, uh, anyway, um, that's, that was the moment. That was the, but after that moment, when he went back to the Silmarillion, he found it had changed. Right. It had been brought into a completely different kind of story and he couldn't go back to the heroic legends, the mere, you know, just the heroic legends and, and, and mythology that he had before. There was something else that he wanted and he wanted to make sure that this all worked together. Right. He wanted to bring this together. He was telling a story. Um, He was making uh, a feigned history now. And he wanted to go back with a historical lens, looking at this ancient material, right? Well, anyway, so that's what we've seen before. What do we see here? Well, let's, um, let's dig into the text. This is from Carl's introduction. These two texts, by which he means the first two, uh, the first, uh, from the first chapter, uh, conveniently demonstrate that sometime between 1951 and 1957, Tolkien made two decisions that would have far-reaching effects on his legendarium. While the first of these decisions, namely to make the sun and moon coeval with Arda, the inhabited world, and its ramifications in and for Tolkien's subsequent writings and revisions, have already been documented and considered by Christopher Tolkien in the final three volumes of his monumental history of Middle-earth, 
and particularly in the section titled Myths Transformed in Volume 10, Morgoth's Ring. The second transformative decision and its ramifications have not before been presented. As the second of these two texts shows, Tolkien had by 1957 decided that the number of sun years in a year of the trees, or Valian year, that is a year as it was passing in Valinor, should be greatly increased from the previous rate of 10 sun years equals one Valian year to a new rate of 144 sun years equals one Valian year, and thus vastly expanded the length of time in sun years of the events recorded in the Annals of Valinor and subsequent chronologies dated in Valian years. Okay, <clears throat> now, I certainly agree with Carl that that's a huge deal. Right, That's a big, big old deal that he goes from 10 to 144. But let's think about that shift a little bit. Well, hang on a second. Before we think about that shift, let's not skip over the first shift. Um, because this is something we did talk about quite a bit when we talked about Morgoth's Ring. Uh, and that is Tolkien's... Hmm, I almost said temptation. That's pejorative of me. I shouldn't do that. Inclination, uh, perhaps? Um, his inclination um, to, um, uh, to bring the mythology of the Elder Days into line to make it consistent, essentially, with the understanding of modern science. Right? That's... Um, uh, uh, that's what um, what he kept doing, right? What we see him doing consistently uh, in that stage of things. Um, now, uh, <laughs> yeah, Bruce says no, go with temptation. Yeah, no, I I, I hear that. Um, okay, so here's the thing, um, and I think. It's true that Christopher Tolkien did present myths transformed and um, like the, the his version of the Ainu Indale, um, where the sun is there from the beginning, where the world is round and the sun is there from the beginning, right? Um, but those of you who did that discussion with me will remember that I certainly, and I think most of you guys who discussed that book with me rather hated it. Um, and we were all expressing very great gratitude uh, for the lovely woman who read his draft and said, I really like the, you know, the old flat earth version better. Uh, and he seemed to go with that, right? Um, he seemed to go with that. We see him continuing to think it through this whole, um, uh, it needs to... It needs to work with the way that we understand the world. In Myths Transformed, it's true. But again, even there, it didn't seem definite that he was going to do it, right? Now, here's, um, um, here's the other thing. Um, you may remember what I was saying about it at the time. I think I even said something like, if I could talk to Tolkien about it, this is one of the things in which I would say, 
don't do this, man. Right? In which I would want to give him advice, right? And the advice that I would have wanted to give was, it, it, it seemed like he was limiting himself. It seemed like he was limiting himself under a kind of an artificial restraint, if you see what I mean. He was... There seemed to be, to me, one linchpin, or, uh, or perhaps one, um, one final tether that was restraining his world um, and, and, and getting in the way, conflicting in his mind, clearly conflicting with his mythological tendencies. And that one tether was his assertion that Middle-earth is our world. If he were just, and as I was, I was, as I was saying in the last class, if he would just cut it free, right, cut that last tie and say, you know what, it's, this isn't our world. It's not our world, so it's okay. It doesn't matter because because again, the problem was he's like, well, the elves can't be wrong about the history of the world. Like we know the the world wasn't actually flat and then became round. We know the sun really was there before the earth. Right, and so the elves would know that they wouldn't tell stories about creation that were incorrect because they would have learned it from the Valar, who certainly knew on account of being there. Right, so the elf mythology, the elf stories, the elf legends of creation and the formation of the world have to be true. They have to be right. Right, so they have to be consistent to some extent with science, or at least science, you know, the scientific understanding, you know, uh, of Tolkien's time. And again, I was like, look, if we just could just, just, just cut that cord, just cut that cord, right? Set it free, set Middle Earth free. Don't make it be our world. There's no reason for it to be our world, right? It's okay. And, you know, and we were talking about like, well, we can kind of understand, you know, that, um, uh, that it was, um, Oh, and sorry, Chad, I'm not remembering. Uh, can somebody remind me of the name of the woman who gave him that feedback? Mrs. Who, I'm forgetting her last, her name. If you guys could look that up. Uh, Ferrer, thank you, Greg. Catherine Ferrer. That was it. Catherine Ferrer. Um, yes, we were all, we were all uh, grateful uh, to, uh, to Mrs. Ferrer. Um, anyway, so, uh, so I said just cut the cord, Tolkien, and then your world can be free, right? Then you can do whatever you want, and you don't have to have this artificial constraint imposed upon your world, right? Um, that is what I feel like the first three pages of this book gave me a new understanding of. Um, I was seeing it merely as something holding him back, right? Something like a, almost like a kind of obligation, uh, almost like, that he felt like he had to, uh, um, he had to fulfill, right? Um, uh, but, um, I think we begin to see the answer in the second paragraph, in the other transformative decision. On the one hand, it seems a relatively simple thing. Um, he already had the concept, the years of the trees are longer than the years of the sun. Right, so years as they pass in Middle Earth, they don't count time the same way in Valinor. Um, now, of course, the question of years was really important because he had been for a couple decades already writing annals, right? Um, 
catalogs, uh, you know, chronological catalogs of events as they happen. And so, you know, when your whole narrative or the vast majority of your narrative, um, and now mind Christopher Tolkien did not retain the annals structure in the published Silmarillion, um, but a very great deal of the prose which Christopher Tolkien has published in the published Silmarillion is taken from the annals um, that Tolkien wrote. And so when a great deal of your prose has a, a date at the, at the start of it, you think about these things, right? Clearly. Um, so he'd already decided that it was going to be bigger. Now, 10 to 1. 10 to 1, right? This gives us a glimpse into the way he was thinking about that. And I think there are two interesting things that jump out to me, right? One is it's a significant ratio. It's not like two to one or three to one or 1.5 to one or something like that, right? It's not just that the Valiant years were a little bit longer. They're much longer, order of magnitude uh, longer uh, than the years of Middle-earth. So we can see already that he wanted this wide gap between the years as they counted them in Valinor and the years as they counted them in Middle-earth. Um, one thing that we see as he's coming back and revising this in 1957 is that he wants that's he wants two orders of magnitude. He decides that ten is not cutting it, right? And he wants 144. Uh, he wants this to be um, again a whole other order of magnitude greater in difference. So we see him thinking bigger already in terms of that. But notice also, it's not just, and it should be much longer. He didn't change it from 10 to 100. He changed it from 10 to 144, right? Um, do, you see the, do you see the significance there? Or the implications, I guess I should say, of that? Just that simple fact. Um, yeah, base 12... Right. We've, of course, we've got, uh, you know, on Bilbo's birthday to be celebrating one gross is, uh, of course, appropriate. I agree, Rachel. Um, but um, uh, yes, Josiah, he is fleshing out his assertion in The Lord of the Rings that the elves preferred to reckon in twelves, um, for which there is actually almost no evidence in the previously published texts. Exactly. Exactly. What we see is that one number. The number 144 tells us something, and it tells us not just, I'm going to reconsider this world in order to tie it to our world. It tells us, I am going to do thorough and consistent world building of the Elvish world in a way that he had never done before, right? And that is, for me, the transformation that I get immediately from this book is that I was, when we were discussing Morgoth's ring, as you guys will remember, I was thinking, man, he's holding himself back. Why won't he let himself go? Now, he was letting himself go. This is what letting himself go looks like, actually, right? Because what he's doing is world building, is actually, um, uh, actually, working things through so that he has a thorough and consistent system. Um, people talk about 
Tolkien is world builder, of course, all the time, and very rightly. People talk about what a detailed world Middle-earth is and, uh, and uh, you know, how, uh, how real it feels, right? But of course, even in the Lord of the Rings, there is one part of that world which is a little bit conspicuous for not being that detailed. The Shire is pretty detailed. We get genealogies and a full chronology and, and uh, you know, we don't get the all of the ancient history of the Hobbits, but that's okay. We don't need too much more than we have there um, for it to feel real and for it to feel like it has a, a grounding in history and all of that kind of thing. Um, but the elves, the elves, there's a lot of hand-waving about the elves, right? Um, we don't get anything like the kind of detailed world building about the elves. He'd never done it before, right? And we begin to see him doing it. We saw this in Morgoth's Ring, right? Especially in the section of Morgoth's Ring called The Laws and Customs Among the Eldar. Now, this is my summary. This is not a quotation. This is just me extracting some points from the passages from the Laws and Customs Among the Eldar uh, that, uh, that Carl quoted in the, uh, in the introduction uh, to the book. Um, and so this is some of the things that began to emerge as he begins to think through this stuff. Um, elves develop more swiftly in mind and can talk when they're one years old, more swiftly in mind than mortals, right? They can walk and dance and have mastery of their bodies by age one. So he said, you know, you'd see this tiny little, not toddler, because they don't toddle, right? They dance, right? I mean, they are, they are, they not only can walk around, they're elegant at age one. Elves are, right? But they only grow to full stature slowly, not being fully grown until 50 or in some cases 100 years old. So they grow very slowly, even though they can talk really quickly and they're really like, their gross motor skills are top notch, right? Presumably they're fine motor skills too. Um, no, these are sun years we're talking about here, Martin. Uh, this is from the Laws and Customs Among the Eldar uh, in uh, Morgoth's Ring. Um, uh, Yes, uh, uh, George, this is also when he started talking about Thea and Roa, uh, the spirit uh, and the body. Absolutely. Um, they get married early, about age 50, and have few children, usually less than five. Elf babies gestate for a year and are often born on their first conception day. That is, on the anniversary of the day when they were conceived. And everybody knows when they're conceived. Elves are in control of that. That doesn't happen by accident with elves. Um, and so, like, the elf elf mom and dad both know the day on which the uh, child was con was con uh, was conceived, and that's the day they celebrate, uh, not the day of the birth. Though that often happens on the first, you know, the, you celebrate your first, uh, uh, your first birthday. Well, it's not a birthday. It's a conception day by being born, right? Um, a greater share of the strength of mind and body goes forth into the begetting and bearing of children than among mortals. That is, of the parents, of both parents, father and mother, but especially the mother, but the father too. Anyway, these are, this is some of the things um, that emerged <clears throat> that he talked about, and in some detail, uh, in the laws and customs among the Eldar. Now, uh, Morgoth's ring quiz. How many of you remember when he started writing the laws and customs among the Eldar? When did this come up? Um, what was he doing? How did that come about, the writing of the laws and customs among the... He didn't just sit down and say, I shall write a bunch of things, which I shall call the laws and customs among the Eldar, right? Um, uh, that's not what happened. 
what happened. Yes, James, exactly. Uh, uh, James and Greg and, and Josiah. Yeah. Um, uh, the death of Muriel. He was reworking the story and he got up to the death of Muriel, the birth of Feanor and the death of Muriel. And at that point, he paused for a very long time. Uh, and an enormous amount of text emerged, right? Because he didn't know how it worked. He had had the legend already. Um, at least a version of it. Uh, Feanor, that is. Um, but what it meant to conceive Feanor and give birth to Feanor and what happened to Muriel after she died and, and what it meant to remarry and all these things, like all of a sudden it opened up all of these questions to which he needed an answer because he was asking a totally different set of questions than he used to be asking. Again, once the Silmarillion material merged with the Lord of the Rings material, when, when those became the same world, he's now writing a totally different kind of story and thus asking completely different questions than when he was just writing mythology back in the teens and 20s. So now he's asking, so he begins to answer these questions. He begins to uh, talk, think, talk about elvish marriage and pregnancy and growth and birth and all the, and it, it kept going, lots and lots of other things, right? So all of this stuff emerges uh, from, from the story, right? But again, the impulse that we see is this world-building impulse. He'd never answered these questions before. We knew more, uh, like he had done more world-building about dwarves, honestly, than he had about elves, as far as this kind of rigorous world-building is concerned. At that point, he had, he had done more with dwarves, because he'd written, in a sense, more about the dwarves, like in The Hobbit, and, uh, uh, and even uh, later on in the way that was developed in The Lord of the Rings. Again, I'm not saying he wasn't interested in elves. I'm not saying that they were an afterthought. I'm saying that these kinds of questions, he hadn't asked about them, right? Um, and, um, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, Arthur, um, elves marry at 50 and are not considered adults until 50. Yeah, they get, they, getting married and having kids is like the first thing you do as an elf adult. That's like how you know you're an adult, right? When it's, when you've decided it's time uh, to get married and have kids. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Stephen, that's a really wonderful comparison. Stephen covers comparing it to that moment in The Return of the King um, when Pippin suddenly starts wondering about Gandalf's history. Remember, as they're walking into the throne room at Minas Tirith, and Pippin, who's known Gandalf for years, is suddenly saying to himself things like, um, who was Gandalf anyway? When did he come into the world? And when would he leave it, right? Um, what, what is he, actually, right? Um, and, and I agree. It was like Tolkien sort of was having that same kind of moment um, with the elves, in a sense. Um, now, Tony, I think he might have been kind of relying on fairy traditions to fill in the blanks earlier to some extent, to some extent. Um, I don't know that he was. Uh, I guess I'd, I'd agree with half of that, Tony. Was he relying on fairy traditions? Yes. There were some things that he didn't feel that he had to spell out because he was kind of invoking um, fairy traditions. Yes. Um but was he counting on them to fill in the blanks? No, because he wasn't perceiving these as blanks. And of course, most of those traditions don't fill in these blanks. In fact, it's because he was following those traditions that he was leaving everything vague, right? I mean, like when you read, um, uh, you know, you, 
read a story like Rumpelstiltskin or you read a story um, uh, like, um, uh, uh, you know, Sir Gowan and Dame Ragnall or something like that, like where the, you know, Arthurian knight goes off into the woods and meets a, a, a hideous woman who makes makes him marry her and then it turns out she's an elf queen, right? Like that kind of story. How much, how how many blanks are filled in about who elves are and how they work in those stories? Usually not many, right? It's it's a mystery. And that's the kind of story he was writing before, right? But now, now an inquiring mind wants to know, right? And Tolkien's is the inquiring mind. What we see, I think, um, one of the first things we see in the nature of Middle-earth is that once he started doing this, the inquiring mind wanted to know, and it didn't stop wanting to know, right? Um, uh, and so we see him... Uh, so my answer, by the way, my answer to the question, why didn't Tolkien rewrite the Silmarillion, is no longer what I would have given if somebody asked me that question a month ago. Somebody asked me that question a month ago. Why didn't Tolkien finish the Silmarillion? I would have said, because he couldn't. He was reconsidering so many things it would have taken so much time to rewrite all of that stuff. <clears throat> he just, he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. That's not my answer now. Today, my answer to the question, why didn't Tolkien rewrite the Silmarillion, was he did. He started. He just didn't finish. And it's clear that he did start, and start with intention. Look at this. This is uh, from the beginning of chapter 3. And again, this is uh, Carl, uh, the editor, uh, speaking. Um... While I have not felt obliged to retain the precise order of texts as found in the Time and Aging file, I have done so for the first five texts that follow, because Tolkien appears to have selected, relabeled, and, in the case of the first three, assigned them Roman numerals, in such a way as to indicate a plan to assemble a larger work from them, to be titled Of Time in Arda. In the case of the first text, originally called Time Scales, Tolkien assigned it a number and a new title, one. The Quendi compared with men. The second text, originally called Youth of the Quendi, was likewise assigned a number and a new title. Three, Natural Youth and Growth of the Quendi. He point, Carl points out that two appears to be missing. Oh yeah, right here. If there was ever a text two, it appears no longer to reside in the time and aging folder. The third text was simply assigned a number, otherwise retaining its original title. Four, Summary of the Eldarin Traditions Concerning the Awakening and the Legend of the Quivier, Quivian Yarna. Additionally, all the, slides of the, all, the, all the sides of these texts that had not previously been struck through were then renumbered continuously from 1 to 15. So pages 1 to 15. Now, do you see the implications of this? A lot of what we see in these early chapters is him apparently making notes we can see him thinking things through. There's a whole bunch of these passages, and I'll point out some of them as we get there, a whole bunch of these passages for whom he himself seems to be the audience. It's like he's talking to himself, working out these things, right? Um, or maybe he's talking to Christopher. I'm not sure. Maybe there's not a huge difference between those uh, two forms of address in his mind. Um, but anyway, I'm not convinced that for all of those, he's writing for an external reader. In fact, I might not even assume he was thinking that way at all. But this evidence uh, that Carl shows us here is very suggestive, isn't it? Timescales, 
youth of the Quindi. That's what he called these things, apparently, right? Like it's what he labeled them when he was writing them. But now he's selected, retitled them, numbered them, numbered the pages, and done a typescript. Exactly like he's preparing this for publication, right? Um, in some form. I don't know in what form. Um, yeah, Josiah, maybe it was future appendices. Maybe that's, uh, in fact, what he was thinking of, right? I don't know. Um, but it does seem that he has in mind publication here, um, that he actually means this stuff to come together. So, again, my answer to the question, why didn't he ever rewrite this? He did. Here it is. Here's him beginning it. And this looks a lot like some of the things that we saw back in 1937, back in the Wast Road, when we were discussing that, when we see him beginning to try to put things in order for publication, right? Um, and when we did that, by the way, when we saw that in 1937, what we saw is that there was no Silmarillion, really. Not as we think of it. Not as a one-volume thing. He was going to publish a whole series of mini-books, Right, the Annals and the Quintus Silmarillion uh, and uh, the um, the Tree of Tongues, remember, and the Ambarcanta and the Ainuindale. Right, all of those were going to be separate, but not necessarily separate, separately bound volumes. Right, um, but it was uh, it was not just going to be one continuous book. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Christopher, I agree with you. Um, uh, it seems that had he proceeded from this sort of world building, the work that would have emerged would have been very different in character from the pre-Lord of the Rings elven history. Um, I feel like it would have lost some of its mythic focus. I completely agree with you, Chris. I do. But it no longer feels to me like the same situation that I was dreading, honestly, when we were talking about Myths Transformed. Um We'll see if we can get around to why I think that. But um, anyway, okay. So let's um, let's dig in. Uh, this is not the official start. We've been talking about this for some time. Um, but let's go back to chapter one here. From here, I'm going to mostly go in order. Uh, go in order through. And by the way, I have no aspirations to get past chapter four tonight. If we can get to chapter four, I'll be impressed. Um, but that's okay. It'll take as long as it takes. There are 12 tree hours in each valiant day, 144 days in each valiant year. But each valiant year equals 144 mortal years. Therefore, one valiant day equals one mortal year, and one tree hour equals approximately one mortal month. Time is recorded for mortal purposes during the days of the trees thus. VY, that is valiant year, 100. VDAY, 136, the hour 9. That would be how you would record the ninth month of the 136th sun year of the 100th valiant year. Okay. In Middle-earth, originally, the Quendi appreciated and aged in 144 uh, mortal years, or yen, as mortals in one mortal year. Therefore, when they went to Amman, they felt no change. But those who remained soon felt the necessary rate of mortality or aging. After the death of the trees and the ruin of Beleriand, the rate was about 12 years equals one mortal year. 
the elves awoke in Valiant Year 1050 and reached Amon in 1133, after 83 Valiant Years, which felt as 83 years to them, but was, actually, 11,952 mortal years. Men awoke in Valiant Year 1150, or 100 Valiant Years later, 14,400 mortal years. Okay, so they woke up 14,000 mortal years after the elves awoke. Okay, now, what does all this mean? Um, <laughs> Stephen says, uh, I feel like any moment we're going to be asked about a train leaving Valinor at a specific tree hour. Yeah, actually, Stephen, that's, to me, kind of precisely the point, right? Um, it, there, it, is a, it is a lot like a word problem. Notice the frame of this discussion. Uh, let me explain what I mean by that. Like, what's the point? Why is he telling us this? Why does anyone, including him, care about this? That, this is the question um, that I keep asking. Why should we care? And why does he care? Those won't necessarily always be exactly the same answer, but why does he care and why should we care um, about this stuff, right? Okay. Um, look at that first paragraph. What's he doing? What's he doing here, right? Um, what he's doing is summed up in that last sentence. The most kind of boring sentence of the whole paragraph, right? Time is recorded during the days of the trees thus. VY 100, V day 136, V hour 9 equals the ninth month of the 136th sun year of the 100th valian year. Do you see what he's doing? He's translating. He's translating Valian dates to mortal dates. Valian dates to Middle-earth dates. That's what he's doing. He's giving us the key, right? Giving us the key so that we can perform that translation. Because presumably, whatever else this is leading up to, right? whatever else this is leading up to, it's leading up to the annals of Amon, right? and the annals of Beleriand, which he'd already spent years drafting. And he, remember, I mean, remember from Morgoth's Ring, he's revising heavily during this period, right? So we know he's not abandoning the annals plan, right? The annals as a vehicle, as a literary vehicle, right? So what is this meant to be? What's the opposite of an appendix? <laughs> it's like a, a prologue? I guess, as part of a prologue to the Polish... I mean, this is going to be, by the way, I'll be interested to see as we go along what kind of evidence we get for this. Um, we were talking, as I already mentioned, back when we discussed The Lost Road, about the evidence that we could see of what the Silmarillion in his head looked like, right? That thing that he wanted published, what was that thing? that he wanted published. What was the thing in his head? 
Um, I'm going to be interested to see as we go through the nature of nature of Middle Earth, what kind of evidence we get about what the Silmarillion looks like in his head now. And this, I think, is one little indicator. I'm guessing that that uh, that that book part thing of time in Arda that he was talking about there um, is going to be something like a prologue to the annals to give us some context and make sure that we can understand things. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so. OK, um, exactly. Something like a concerning elves section. That's exactly it. Uh, concerning elves. Um, so, yes. But again, notice it, he's he's translating. Valiant year 100, valiant day 136, valiant hour 9. The ninth hour of the 136th day of the 100th year. That's how they're going to tell the date in Valiant. But he's not just explaining. His goal is not merely to say, here's how they told time and did dates in Valinor. His primary point is to do the translation. In Middle-earth, what that will mean is the ninth month of the 136th year of the 100th Valiant year. Because there are 146 mortal years in each of the, uh, in each of those Valiant years, right? Um, so one day, and so, you know, one day equals, as he just explained, one day equals one year, one hour equals about a month. So now you know how to translate it. Now you know how to put it in. So it's, it's the bringing together. Um, so Stephen, this is where, to me, it is kind of like a word problem, Right. Um, if it's, if this is the date in, you know, you could totally, we could totally assign some homework on this basis, right? Um, if this is the, you know, the date in Valiant time, what date is it in mortal time, right? Um, and, uh, if, um, uh, if things happen on this, uh, mortal date and then this king rules in Middle Earth for a hundred years, uh, in how many, you know, Valiant hours, will that king have been ruling, right? I mean, we can totally do word problems uh, based on this. And that's exactly the kind of conversions, right, um, that, um, that he is wanting to do. And notice how he continues that in the second paragraph, right? Um, in Middle-earth originally, the Quendi appreciated and aged in 144 mortal years as mortals in one mortal year. So again, he's saying, like, what does this mean? And he's still translating, right? When I'm going to be talking about elf time, when you see the valiant years going by in the annals, right? I want you to be able to translate it, oh, reader, gentle reader. I want you to be able to translate it in your head. You, I want you, I'm, I'm trying to empower you to do the math in your head, right? So that when I say, and Finway ruled... Uh, you know, in Tyrion upon Tuna uh, for however many years, right? That you can be thinking like, okay, meanwhile, in Middle-earth, here's how many years were, had gone by during that time. Or like, you know, Fanor is exiled for this many days or whatever, right? Um, what would it have felt like to a mortal who was there watching, Right. Because remember when I say, you know, and also like, what does it mean to the elves? Um, they're only aging, essentially, at a one to 
144 rate, right? But then later, after the death of the trees and the ruin of Beleriand, the rate was about 12 years to one mortal year. So their aging gets accelerated by a factor of 12, or their perceived aging, right? But again, he's enabling us to translate as he then immediately applies it in that third paragraph. The elves awoke in Valiant year 1050 and reached Amon in 1133. And then he helps us, right? This is what I want you, gentle reader, to be able to do. Okay, so they awoke in 1050 and they arrived in 1133, which means they spent 83 years in transit. But that actually means they were in transit for 11,952 years of the sun. It was almost 12,000 years that the elves were matriculating their way across Middle-earth to the coast, right? And then sailing across and landing in Amman, right? Um, now, um, I... Yeah, so... Um, uh, that's... Um, yeah, Josiah says, this brings a whole new meaning to the lingerers. Yes, yes. Or, or faint-hearted loiterers, Josiah. Yeah, yeah. Loitering for an extra few millennia right there on, on the coast. Um, yes. <laughs> Anna wants to know, how could they even walk that slowly? I know, right? I mean, slow walking uh, is what they did. I don't think that they were in continuous motion in one direction that whole time. Though, Anna... It's another word problem, right? Um, if the elves set out in, in, in Valiant year 1050 and arrived uh, in 1133 and they traversed, you know, X number of leagues, what was the average speed <laughs> of, the, of the... Yeah, we don't want to do that one. Because again, I don't think, uh, I don't think, I don't think that that uh, uh, necessarily is the thing. Uh, yes, Arthur suggests that speech is not the only thing the elves taught to the Ents, apparently. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Um, uh, that's right. Uh, so no, Stephen, I'm not going to be assigning homework. I'm not going to be assigning word problems. But as I said, I mean, they practically write themselves, don't they? Um, men awoke in Valiant year 1050. They, wo they woke 100 Valiant years later. Which is actually... 14,400 mortal years later. Now, you'll remember that Christopher Tolkien was pointing this out in Morgoth's Ring, um, that when Tolkien was trying to make the, um, you know, the awakening of the sun work and everything, one of the problems he was having was there's not enough time, right? I mean, he had like from the like beginning of the race of men to, you know, the wars of Beleriand, it was only like a couple hundred years. And he's like, that's not nearly enough time, even if you multiply it by 10. I don't even know. Um, now, it's easy. 100 years? Yep, that's plenty of time. 14,000 years passed by. Um, it, uh, it become, things become a lot, uh, a lot easier. A lot easier. Now, anyway, okay. Um, yeah, now I agree with Tony and with what Chris were saying that this kind of migration over 12,000 years is not that far-fetched. In fact, when we look at the history of uh, human migrations, that works, actually, for an entire society to be moving across. Now, the difference is, unlike, say, human societies migrating out of Africa into Asia, um, 
this is, they had a goal. Like they were actually on a trip, <laughs> right? Like they weren't, um, uh, the, when, uh, you know, when, when human societies migrated out of Africa into Asia, they weren't responding to an invitation, <laughs> right? When that happened. So it's still a different context, but I agree. I agree. It's not, uh, totally, uh, totally far-fetched. Um, okay. Um, now, Kurtz, that's a great question. Um, what were they counting years by? Um, uh, we count by celestial signs. What were they using? We're not told because, of course, this is being counted in Valian years. So I think these years are being counted for them. Um, I think it's the Valar who are counting these years, right? And the elves are going to learn this count of years, right? Um, but um, uh, but at the time... I don't think they, they, the elves didn't know it was 1050 in Valiant years when they awoke by Quivienna. As you know, I don't believe they actually knew that. Um, but, um, okay, let's, um, let's keep going. <clears throat> in a revised scheme, this is from chapter two now, in a revised scheme in which the sun and moon are a primeval part of Arda established before Arda was habitable, the basic time, even in Amman, must be the sun year, since this governs all growth, be it slow, normal, or quick. But the sun day need not be observed, since Valinor was domed over. Pause. Those of you who did Morgoth's Ring will remember this, but for those who didn't, um, of course, there were several things, and we saw this tension a lot, when Tolkien wanted to say, like, okay, no, 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 let's make it work. Let's make it work. The sun and moon are there from day one. No more, you know, flower of Telperion in the sky. Um, uh, no, no, no. There's a sun and the moon, and there's the earth that orbits them and everything, and the elves knew that perfectly well, and obviously the Valar knew that. Anyway, um, we saw that there were a bunch of places where there was tension between mythology mythological elements of the original stories, which Tolkien loved, um, and the newer sort of, uh, at least sort of quasi-scientific version uh, of the myths. And we saw that there were several things, several places where he was willing to compromise, several places where he let the mythological version of the story go in order to, um, uh, in order to, uh, make the new conception work. But there were some things he wouldn't compromise on, mercifully. One of those was the trees, the two trees of Valinor. And that, and not only that the two trees existed, but that the light of the two trees and the waxing and waning of the two trees should be the light of Valinor, that Valinor existed under the light of the two trees. Um, so how does that work when the sun and moon are already in the sky and the earth is orbiting it and Valinor is on the earth, right? How does that, how does that work? And the answer, his answer to this problem was Varda makes a dome. Varda encases Valinor within an opaque dome. So the sun and moon do not shine in Valinor. Instead, the trees within it and illuminating the dome underneath, um, that's where the light of Valinor comes from. Um, so that's Aiden. That is since when Valinor was domed over. Um, that was his solution to this problem. So, okay. So again, days and nights, Sundays and nights, meaningless in Valinor because they don't even see the sun, right? Um, the seasons still change 
So the sun years, yes, that's still relevant because they still have the four seasons uh, in Valinor because it's on the earth and we're revolving around the sun. So yeah, we've got seasons. So sun year, yes. Sunday, no, because we don't see the sun rising and setting. Hence, the basic equivalent of Valian time and Middle-earth time, VT and MT, will be one Valian day or tree day equals one sun year. All multiplications or divisions of this were by 12. Hence, the Valian month had 12 Valian days. 12 years, the Valian year, again, had 12 Valian months, 144 years. Okay, so, uh, so 12 Valian days equals 12 years, because one Valian day equals one year. And the Valian year, which is called a yen, had 12 Valian days months, right? So since one month has 12 days, so so he's, he's, he's establishing the divisions, right? We have a year and we divide the year into 12 months, which is a good start, but then we go astray, right? Then we divide the, uh, the 12 months into 30-ish days, right? And then we divide the days into 24 hours, which is close but no cigar. And then we divide the hour, the, the 24 hours uh, into 60 minutes, which is like, what? 60? Where does that come from? And then we divide the 60 minutes into 60 seconds, concerning which see above, right? So that's how we do these things. And partly this is based on how the sun and the moon work, right? Why 30 day? Why the 30? Well, the month has its root in the moon. Right. So we've got the waxing and waning cycles of the moon. We've got the days and nights. So the 24 hours and the months, they're kind of programmed into Middle Earth based on what we actually experience with the movement of the sun and moon. Take the sun and moon out of the equation. And what can you do? Nice, even base 12 divisions across the board. And that's how the elves and Valar roll, apparently. Right. So one valiant year equals 12 valiant months. One valiant month equals 12 valiant days. One valiant day equals 12 valiant hours, and so on, and so on. Right? Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Um, Christopher says, I question the need for a month when there wasn't a monthly cycle to track, like the lunar cycle. Yeah, I agree, Chris. Um, but again, notice... All they have are divisions, right? They want to have, they see the convenience of not just measuring everything in years. They want to be able to identify things more narrowly. And notice, remember, they still have a touch point with the mortal world, which is the sun year, according to this schema, right? One valiant day is one sun year. That's the base. That's the base, Christopher is the one day, right? Because a day of the trees equals one year of the sun. Apparently, you got to think Yavanna planned that. Yavanna, who knew better about the changing of the seasons than Yavanna, right? She's totally on top of that. So when she sets up, when she winds up the trees and sets them going, right, she has the trees waxing and waning um, in time with the change of the seasons, with the revolution of the sun, or sorry, the revolution of the earth or about the sun, right? And then everything else works. Um, so in a sense, Chris, they're not 
devising months downward from years. They're going upward from days. Every 12 days, we shall call a month. And every 12 months, we shall call a year. Um, and are those words, month and year, are those metaphorical? Yeah, I think so. In fact, I think they're translational, right? Um, the words months and, and years are only being used in parallel to the terms we're already used to, right? But Josiah, you're absolutely right. The elves were metric before it was cool. Yeah, exactly. Just base 12 instead of, uh, instead of base 10. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Um, these equivalences are exact since the Valiant Day was maintained always at the length of the elvish loa or sun year, whether that varied or lengthened or not. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, notice how he is less focused on translation here. He's already shifted. And remember, um, I tried to note the dates here, right? 1957, 1959, right? Uh, by 1959, what he's focusing on more is just how did the elves think? How did they work through this? How did they solve these problems? Right? The elves and the Valar. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's keep going. <laughs> I, I don't know if you guys all laughed out loud like I did uh, when I got to this place. But come on. Um, here's Tolkien doing his equivalences. Breaking down Elvish time all the way to the minim, right? Uh, and here's his little note. Or very nearly. At true value, this would be 35,831,807.9581 minims in a year. And then Carl, the editor, adds, Tolkien then wrote actual value and calculated the fractional part of the relation of a minimum to solar seconds to approximately 360 decimal places, <laughs> noting where value started to repeat. On the next page, he adds a sext before the minimum, thus shortening the minimum by a further twelfth. This man did not have a calculator. This man, Tolkien, I mean, had a, another piece of paper, the back of another sheet of paper, next to the piece of paper he was writing on. And he started doing long division. And he kept dividing and dividing and dividing for 360 decimal places. 360 decimal places. Why do you do that? Why would anybody ever do that? Well, we only get one hint. Carl has given us one very interesting hint. That he was noting where values started to repeat. See, now, 
I can understand, Tarloniel, somebody doing long division for fun when they were bored. I can. I really can. Um, but he's not bored. You know, one is tempted to make a joke like, come on, man, get a hobby. But this is his hobby. Not long division. <laughs> but but his, it seems like he's distracting himself from um, distracting himself from his work. But it's not his work. It's, it's his play. Right? It's his play. And I hear that about um, having papers to grade. I'm sure. But if you have papers, he's already distracting himself from his papers by doing calculations about Elvish time in the first place, right? He's not going to get more distracted by carrying on the calculation wholly needlessly for 360 decimal places. I don't even know how you do that. Um, I would love to see a picture of that, actually. Um, but, um, yeah. Uh, anyway. But you see the hint? I think there's, I think we can see a reason why he started doing it. Um, noting where the value started to repeat. Why did he keep dividing until he got to 360 decimal places? I think because he started seeing patterns in the numbers and wanted to see how those patterns would play out if he kept going. I suspect that's why he did it. As there can't be... Not even Tolkien could have convinced himself that anyone would care about the ratio of elvish minim. So a minim is the smallest unit of time measurement for elves. Right, of the ratio between minims and seconds to 360 decimal places? No, but not even Tolkien would have believed that anyone would have cared about that level of precision. Um, I don't believe that Tolkien kept going because he said to himself, well, this could be important. No. I think he started to see patterns in the numbers. Um... And uh, wanted to see what the patterns would look like. Tolkien loved patterns. We know he loved patterns. Um, somebody was referring to his newspaper doodles. Yeah. Um, and also, I would add, of course, his... Um, um, what's it called? Heraldry, right? Uh, for the different elvish houses. Um he loved patterns, visual patterns. Um, and I think we have here some evidence that he was interested in, in numerical patterns as well. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder where the values started to repeat. Now I want more information on the 360 decimal places. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, 
Okay. I, I just, I felt like we had, this was, if this didn't give you a little bit of a glimpse into Tolkien's mind and how it worked, right? Um, how Tolkien's mind worked when he was off duty. Um, you know, not just how he speaks and writes in his published texts and things like that. Oh, man. <laughs> John Barrow was asking, should we reenact the Long Division at the next moot? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's uh, that's just what we should do. That's just what we should do. Yep. Yep. Um, uh, very good. Very good. Amazing. Okay, so here's the uh, equivalence. I love it. The valley and division of time. So an hour, remember an hour was equal to a month because a day, a valley and day, which has 12 hours, is equal to a solar year. And so uh, uh, an hour is equal to a month, um, a Middle Earth month. But then how do we divide the hours? Because a month, that's a lot of time. And remember, as he's going to say, we haven't gotten to this point yet, but he's going to say, that's a lot of time for elves, too. How long is a month for elves? It's a month, right? I mean, it's time doesn't pass faster for them. Um, they, ex they experience it kind of differently, but it doesn't pass any faster for them. So the Valiant Hour, not a super precise piece of uh, uh, calculation, so they break it down. Into primes, seconds, terses, quartz, quints, sects, and minims. Right? Um, why would we do minutes and then seconds? The elves are much more sensible. Right? Primes, then seconds, then terses, then quartz, then quints, and then sexts. Of course. Obviously. Obviously. Um, yeah. And so we get all the way down to a minimum, which is one fourteenth of a second. Approximately. You know, this is not the actual value, needless to say. But you can see how these things begin to be relevant. Now, here's... Um, uh, Oh, Josiah, I totally agree. Medieval chronographers would be in love with this system. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that there are um, uh, there are thousands of medieval monks who would have just loved this book so much. <laughs> so much. <laughs> uh, they loved this kind of thing. Um, but um, anyway, then here's the teaser. In the narrative... Time lengths of less than the valiant second are seldom mentioned, and less than the valiant quart, which is two minutes, practically never. What? In the narrative? It almost never mentions, it seldom mentions any length of time smaller than a second, which is five hours. And less than the valiant quart. Practically never. Um, do you all remember those references to valiant seconds and quartz in the narrative? Me neither. Right? Um, it didn't 
do it. Right? Um, it didn't do it. In other words, we can see him. We can see him picturing. He's planning the narrative. This is not something he's doing instead of rewriting the Silmarillion. He is rewriting this. This is the preamble. This is the prologue to the rewriting of the Silmarillion. He fully intends to rewrite the narrative. And now he has all these shiny new tools, narrative tools to use. Now he can talk about Valiant Seconds. And the reader will know, because they have this convenient chart, that it's five hours, right? And he can say something that happened in a court, which is two minutes. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's going to use it. He fully intends. It seems to me that when he wrote this, he fully intended. This was just the necessary... Uh, preliminary undertaking to the full revision of the Silmarillion text. So why didn't he ever rewrite the Silmarillion? He did. At least he started it. Here it is. He's starting it. This is it. This is it. He is doing world-building, Lynn. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Chris, I do think that it's interesting um, that he's using Latin-derived ordinals. I agree. I agree. It is interesting or a little bit odd. Again, I have to think, I mean, obviously that's translational. I mean, it's not the word they use. Like there's obviously a Quenya word for each of those terms. Um, and so I wonder, Chris, if the whole like loose conceptual parallel, not linguistic parallel, but conceptual, like sort of narrative parallel between Quenya and Latin Quenya as elf Latin was an idea, you know, like it was retained as a language of lore, though not used much in conversation. Um, uh, if if that influenced this, so that when he wanted English words um, to uh, uh, to translate the Quenya terms into, he went with the Latin uh, in that way. So that's my best guess, Chris, as to why he would have done that. It makes a certain amount of sense uh, in that way. Stephen, you're absolutely right. Signum needs to count down to Mythmoot in Valiant Time uh, next year. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, yeah, yeah. And Josiah, I agree. Josiah is pointing out the parallel. Um, like when we look at Tolkien's notes, the notes that he was writing and that he was working with as he was writing The Lord of the Rings, he spent a lot of time working out in careful detail the lunar cycles. Um, so that it would be consistent. And as Josiah says, it doesn't end up being intrusive in the final text. You can read the final text without knowing that he ever did that, right? But it is necessary to make it underlyingly coherent. Um, and yeah, he's do we can see him doing the same thing. He's setting up for the annals, right? Having this in mind and the equivalence in mind, he now knows how to... He's Again, these are the tools that he's going to need in order to narrate these things, Right? Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
more stuff. We're getting close to the end of our time here. But hey, we're in Chapter 3. That's better than I thought we might get. <clears throat> okay. The Valar, having entered Arda, and being therefore confined within its life, must also suffer its slow aging, perceiving it as a growing weight upon them, since they are to the total Erma of Arda, in many ways similar to the Fear within the corporeal Hroar of the incarnate Hroambari. Time out. Let's do that again. Because, I don't know about you, but my mind was blown by this paragraph. Was your mind blown by this paragraph? Because my mind was blown by this paragraph. Let's do it again. The Valar having entered Arda, and being therefore confined within its life. Now, we knew that. Both that the Valar came into Arda, and that having gone into Arda, uh, they were bound to it. Right? That's what the published Ainuindui, or not the Ainuindui. Yeah. I do mean the Aino and Away, says um, that its life is theirs. Remember that line from the Aino and Away that says, you know, its life is theirs? Did you know what that means? I didn't know what that meant. Its life is theirs. Okay. Um, uh, all right. Um, but now we, it comes to it. Being confined within its life must also suffer its slow aging. So the Valar age, they feel the aging of the world because they are confined within the life of the world, within the life of Arda. Perceiving it, the aging of Arda, as a growing weight upon them, since they are to the total Erma of Arda. Now, Erma means matter, like all of the matter, all of the substance that Arda is made from, right? Yes, okay, so hang on a second. Time out further. Uh, some people are surprised. Yes, the Valar age. Now, this is not new. This we knew. Um, there are several references to the aging of the Valar. Um, uh, that goes back all the way to the Book of Lost Tales, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but even in later versions, we hear about the aging of the Valar. Um, they do feel the passage of time. They are bound by the passage of time. They don't get gray, because they're not bodies, right? They don't. They don't they're not bound to bodies. So, you know, they don't get creaky joints and, you know, need anointment from Bilbo on, on his birthday or something like that. Um, but what they do, apparently, they're perceiving it as a growing weight. We, we know that they were subject in some sense to the passing of time. But in what sense um, to the passing of time? Um, um, yes, Stephen, that's why even they will eventually envy men the gift of death. There's that reference in the Aino as well. Yes, exactly, that even the Valar shall envy. Exactly, exactly. Um, okay, okay, so, but wait, so that, the concept that they're subject to aging, little crazy, um, uh, but we've gotten that before, earlier in the history of Middle-earth. It's the last part of the sentence, which is mind-blowing. Since they are to the total Erma of Arda in many ways, similar to the Fear within the corporeal Hroar of the Incarnate. The soul of an elf or human is to their body as the Valar are to the matter of the world. The physical matter of the world is like the body of the Valar. They inhabit 
the, the physical matter of the world like a soul embodies the physical body, dwells, indwells the physical body. Whoa. Whoa. That is amazing. And it begins to help, it helps me anyway, to recontextualize the bodies of the Valar. And what is the difference between the Hroembari, thank you for that word, Tolkien, Hroembari, the incarnate, right? Those who are bound to bodies. Those creatures, those Thear, who are bound to Hroar. Thea is the singular, Thear is plural, Hroa is singular, Hroar is plural. Um, Thea is the spirit, Hroa is the body. Okay. Um, your spirit is bound within your Hroa. The two of them come together. He's going to talk about that more in a second. Well, let's read that and then we'll come back to the other thing. The Quendi, being immortal within Arda, also aged with Arda as regards their Hroar. So the bodies of elves age with Arda. Why? Well, what are their bodies made of? Erma. Matter. Physical Arda stuff. And so Arda itself is aging. So guess what? Their bodies, their Hroar, age as well. The elves, right? Because they're each of the elves, like an elf, what is an elf, right? An elf is a Thea, which is bound to a Hroa, which is a little chunk of Erma, a little chunk of, of Arda matter, right? That gets animated by, connected to, bound to, and, and animated by the Thea, right? But the Hroa part is still Arda stuff, and so it's aging along with Arda, right? So, okay, that makes perfect sense. But since, unlike the Valar, whose true life was not corporeal, and who assumed bodily forms at their own will as raiment, the being of the Quendi was incarnate and consisted naturally of the union of a Thea and a Hroa. This aging was felt chiefly in the Hroa. Okay, since all that is true, this aging, that is the aging of Arda, was felt chiefly in the Hroa. It's the Hroa that comes... So, by the way... Well, hang on. I'll come back to <laughs> that. So much. Okay. Um, so the Valar's true life is not corporeal. The life of the, Val the Valar, their being is the soul that has come into Arda from outside and been bound to Arda as a whole, to the matter of Arda as a whole. And the entirety of Arda is like the body of which they are the soul. Right? So what happens then? What are we seeing? when Olmos rises out of the waves, right? When we see a physical body for one of the Valar. It's something they assume at their own will as raiment. What does that even mean? Raiment means clothes, sure. But, like, what does it mean for them to put on a body like a pair of clothes, right? Well, remember, if the whole Erma, the whole matter of Arda is like their body, it's like they are taking one little bit of artist stuff, of Erma, right? And they're choosing to, like, manifest through that. It isn't their body. All of Arda is their body, right? But they're choosing to, like, show themselves through this one little bit, right? Um, uh, just for a moment, putting it on like clothing. 
drow snake. It's a little bit like a sock puppet, um, but not exactly like a sock puppet. Um, and yes, James, Hroambari is the word I've asked for several times. I'm very grateful to receive it. Yes, uh, I am appropriately grateful. Um, yes. Okay. Um, yes, Sean Strasberg, you are correct that um, it sounds like the very atoms of Arda are growing old and getting tired. Yes. Yes. It's unlike the materialistic view of the of of atoms, which view them as fungible and unchanging. You're right. That is correct. That is correct. Um, okay. Hang on. Several of you are asking about Melkor's power. Not going there yet. Not going there yet. Um, we may get there. And if we don't, I'm, it's, it's going to come up. It's going to I'm confident it's going to come up. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, Kurtz is asking, so the Quendi bodies are inhabited by the Valar souls as well as their own? <sighs> inhabited? No. Yes. No, they're tied to them, right? Because like anything that's connected with matter is connected to the Valar. Yes. Okay, so I will say this much about the corruption of Melkor. That's how the corruption of Melkor works. Um, that's why Arda is marred. Because the marring of Melkor, the discord of Mel Melkor, permeates all of matter, all of Arda. Um, so yes, yes, um, it's um, it's so they're tied to them, but they're not like uh, it's not like they're possessing them or something or like, you know, riding shotgun, you know, within the Roa alongside the Fea of the elf. Right. It's not, it's not like that. Cause again, they're not, they're not in that chunk of matter more than any other chunk of matter. Right. But they're, but they're, but they're connected to them. They're tied to them. That's one of the reasons why they're so protective of them. Right. They're like their own children. Well, not exactly their own children. They're the children of Iluvatar. And why are they the children of Iluvatar? Because where does the Fea come from? The Hroa is made of Arda stuff, right? Um, but the Fea, ah, the Fea comes from Iluvatar. The Fea comes from outside. So you get the Fea comes in from outside, the elf Fea comes in from outside and is joined with a bunch of a little chunk of Arda stuff, of Erma, which becomes the Hroa. And now you've got an incarnate being, a Hroembari, um, who uh, is the combination of that Thea from outside and that Hroa from within Arda. So you'll notice it's a scale thing, right? What happens with each soul, each soul of the Hroembari, of the incarnate humans and elves, it's like a recapitulation. Notice it fits the same pattern. The same recapitulation, same recapitulation pattern we see in Tolkien again and again. A story happens in big picture terms, right? In the first age. You know, you get uh, Fingon and Mithros in the first age, and you get Sam and Frodo um, and the Tower of Kirith Ungol in the third age. Right? That, like, the same story gets repeated, but on a smaller scale. It, it goes all the way down, Right? goes all the way down. This is always happening. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, this, as the Eldar say, was slowly consumed, that is the Hroa, was slowly consumed by the Fea, until instead of dying and being discarded to dissolution, the Hroa, it became absorbed and eventually became no more than the memory of its habitation of old, which the Fea retained. Thus they have become now usually invisible to human eyes. But this has taken long ages to come about. So the Fea of the elves eventually consume their Hroa so that they become invisible. It becomes absorbed. Not consumed, it's not eating it. right? It's not like chewing away bites of their bodies or something. Um, but it's absorbing their bodies until in the end their bodies, there's nothing left of their bodies but the memories of their bodies. In the beginning, the Hroar of the elves, their bodies, being supported and nourished by the great strength of their Fear, were vigorous, resisting hurts, and healing such as they suffered swiftly from within. Their aging was therefore extremely slow by the measure of men, though they were in their earlier days as physical as men, or even more so, more strong, energetic, and swift in body, and taking greater delight in all bodily pleasures and exercises. So elves did have bodies, and their bodies were like ours, except for more vigorous. Steve and I agree. You, we have hit upon yet another of the mythic things that he will not release. Um, as Stephen, the fading of the elves. The fading of the elves. That goes back to the very, very beginning. Remember when Sam asks Strider for a story about the elves before the fading time, right? That question, the spirit of that question that Sam asks, that of, of the request that Sam makes of Strider, is the spirit of the beginning of Tolkien's creative life, basically. That's where Tolkien started when he was like a teenager, right? Teen Tolkien was saying, tell me stories of the elves before the fading time. There are all these legends, all these stories that survive, these traditions that survive about fairy and about the fairies and the elves of old, but they're not still around anymore. They're invisible now. They've faded from the world. But not completely. They've not just vanished, and they were not just lies. They really did exist. Um, and the world still remembers them, right? This is, this is his world, right? And so, what were they like before the fading time? What was the ancient history of the elves? But it's a given from the beginning. From the beginning of the Book of Lost Tales, the very first thing that we have that he wrote, um, uh, it's a given that the elves fade. And that in the modern world, right, in our world, elves might still be there, but not in the same way that they used to, right? Because it's the fading time now. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'd, Sean, I would not suggest imagining black holes consuming nearby stars, drawing in inexorably tendrils of mass. Um, it's not quite like that, right? It's not, not quite like that. 
Um, yes, Josiah is uh, saying, deep they delved us, high they builded us, fair they wrought us, but they are gone. Right? The memories of the elves that were, that the stones retain. Right? And that perception that there were still places in the world. Um, uh, still places in the world. Um, uh, like... Um, uh, You know, the castle with the tower, Tyrion among the trees. Why am I blanking on the English name of the thing? Um, it's not Winchester. That's Warwick, thank you. Good grief. Thank you, guys. Uh, thank you. Warwick, yes, Warwick. Uh, Warwick, apparently, is one of them. One of those places that retains the memory of the elves. You, and you can read about this in Cortarian Among the Trees. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so yes, so there's another thing. So is he de-mythologizing uh, his world? No, he's not stripping it of mythology. He's not changing his approach. But what he's doing, it's more like a marriage. As that was the metaphor I kept using in talking about Morgoth's ring. Marrying the historical and chronological narrative of a story like The Lord of the Rings, right? With the mythology and stories of the Elder Days. I want both, says Tolkien, right? And so that's, I think, what we're getting in what he's doing here. Um, so, George, yes, when Galadriel says, I will diminish, um, yes, this is the same thing. That's what she's talking about. Um, she is consenting. It was the resistance to fading that was her temptation, right? She knows. She knows. It's coming. She feels it coming. And she doesn't want it to come. She resists. Until she doesn't. Um, and that's why it's really important for her to say, I shall diminish and pass into the West and remain. Galadriel. Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah. Good. Okay. Um, all right. Well, that was an excellent start, folks. Um, we got to the beginning of chapter three. So this is why you'll notice I did not publish a reading schedule <laughs> because the last time I did that, how many weeks did I, did my reading schedule for Morgoth's Ring cover? 12? Wasn't it 12? Didn't I map Morgoth's Ring out in 12 sessions last time? Um, and, um, we actually took 28 sessions to discuss Morgoth's Ring, and I don't apologize for that, um, and I'm not going to apologize here either. Um, we are going to take as long as it takes to discuss this book. Um, 20 to 30 sessions is what I expect. Um, so let's say, read through chapter 6 next time. Um, maybe. Probably won't get past five, but read read to six, and we'll see and we'll see where we're going. So, uh, chapter six. Um, uh, yeah, no, don't worry, uh, don't worry, John. I'm not going to take 144 sessions. That's not the plan. Um, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, thanks everybody for joining. This is a lot of fun. I look forward to next week. Now, don't forget. At the beginning of class next week, I'm going to be doing our drawing uh, to thank our wonderful donors. So we're going to be I'm going to be giving away our 
our our uh, our golden ticket there um, at the beginning of class next time. Um, so everybody who makes a donation between now and the start of next week's class uh, will be entered into that drawing. Thanks, everybody, and I will see you guys around. Thanks for coming on this adventure with me. Bye now.